Mark Cuban. How you do anything is how you do everything. If you're not, if you don't pay attention to detail on the little things, you're not going to be in the habit of paying attention to detail for the big things. Ken Griffey Jr. Hey, he wears his hat backwards. Well, I wear my hat backwards because my dad had a fro and I wanted to wear his hat. And if I put his hat on at age six and, you know, he's got a eight and a half and I got like a little five, it's not going to really stay on my head. Jeannie Buss. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. It's good to see everybody. John Smoltz. Is if you don't have the imagination and the willingness to fail or not being afraid to fail, I don't think you can be truly great. Candace Parker. I have so much hope for this generation coming up that have grown up with women in sports, in leadership roles, on television, speaking about sports, speaking knowledgeably about sports. Pau Gasol. To me, all the work that I've done, all the humanitarian work that I've done has always given me great perspective, has allowed me to keep my feet on the ground and uh, has really put and reminded me what's truly important. Damian Lillard. That was for Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) Just to name a few. Welcome to Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger. Well, thanks for joining us on this edition of Sports Business Radio. Hope you're doing well. Two great guests lined up for you this week. First, Ryan Murphy, three-time Olympic gold medalist swimmer, joins us to discuss his preparation for the Tokyo Olympics scheduled for this summer. He shares how he's training, how the one-year delay due to the pandemic has impacted him, And as a graduate of UC Berkeley and the Haas School of Business, Murphy is much more than just a world-class swimmer. Very bright young man. He shares his thoughts on business and investing as well. And he also tells us what's his go-to pre-race meal. I think it might surprise you. That's coming up with Ryan Murphy on our show today. Also, Dr. Karen Gallagher from the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University is going to join us as part of our new ongoing segments with GSI to reveal the Institute's findings around sport. In this segment, we're going to discuss the NFL's report card when it comes to hiring head coaches of color. I'm joined by executive producer Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you? I'm doing good. Just a little disappointed that the uh, Super Bowl that we were all waiting for and hoping for was not quite as uh, you know competitive as we thought it might be. Well, 31 to 9, the Bucks over the Chiefs, I will say, and you can back me up on this, and if you go listen to the last month or so of episodes on Sports Business Radio, I picked the Bucks all along. And, you know, they really hit their groove. I would say a month and a half ago, they started peaking towards the playoffs. Their defense was unbelievable in this game. But Griggs, some numbers around Super Bowl 55. Tom Brady wins his seventh Super Bowl. So by himself, Brady has more Super Bowl victories than any other NFL franchise in history, including the Patriots and Steelers, who have won six Super Bowls each. Greg's Tom Brady is the undisputed GOAT. Oh, hands down. I mean, you can just see it out there. And like we've talked about leading up to the Super Bowl, you know, three road wins to get there. Then he gets the home field advantage. I mean, it's just like he was out there just tossing like backyard passes. Everything just flowed perfect for him. The game plan was great. He knew what he was doing. You could tell he was confident, ready to play, and he just dominated. And I agree. Defense was phenomenal for Tampa Bay. The Bucs have one of the most diverse coaching staffs in the NFL. And again, we're going to talk about diversity with coaching staffs in the NFL with Dr. Karen Gallagher from Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University later. But you have to give head coach Bruce Arians credit for this. First of all, Arians is the oldest coach to ever win a Super Bowl. So that's noteworthy. 
But his offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator are both black. So Byron Leftwich is the offensive coordinator. Todd Bowles is the defensive coordinator. He also has two women on the staff in full-time position. So Griggs, when you're looking at diverse coaching staffs in the NFL, I'm not sure that anyone is as diverse as Tampa Bay and, and they just won the whole thing. So hopefully other teams in the NFL will see this and go, Hey, we need more diversity on our staff. hundred percent. I think that is, it was great to see. And I love how CBS kind of noted that too. And you know, it's just the proof that it, it works and that they work together. It, obviously they win a Super Bowl. They got great coaches and uh, I also love Bruce, too. Like you said, one of the, the oldest coaches in the NFL. I love how they did the piece on his mom sitting up there, 95 years old, encouraged him to come back to coaching. And here he is winning Super Bowls. That's great. All right. Let's talk about the TV broadcast, because usually the Super Bowl is the most watched TV event of the year in the United States. This was no different. But Griggs, the numbers were down 9% from last year's Chiefs versus 49ers Super Bowl. That game saw 100 million people tune in. This game saw 91 million viewers, so down 9%. It's the least watched Super Bowl since 2006. That Super Bowl featured the Steelers and the Seahawks. So numbers are down, but Griggs, let's keep in mind, this will still be the top 2021 broadcast in the U.S. by around 40 to 50 million viewers, but it's not at that 100 million plus number that the networks and the NFL like. But I think it's because it was not a very competitive game. And I think people have found other things to do during the pandemic. There were probably fewer Super Bowl parties. The good news, Griggs, I watched it on streaming as I watch all my programs on streaming now. And streaming numbers were up 65% over last year. 5.7 million people tuned into this game via streaming. So that's a good uh, direction for the NFL and the network partners to be headed in with streaming numbers. Yeah, I'm like you. I too, 100% streaming. So uh, I enjoyed it on streaming. And I think that's obviously where things are going, especially with uh, COVID. I think a lot of people have pulled the plug and switched over to streaming. Interesting, like you said, numbers down. But I think, you know, the second half of a game where it's kind of a blowout, people probably start tuning out. Like you said, no parties. So I see why it went down a couple, uh, you know, some numbers, but still 91 million. That's good for broadcasters. That's good for advertisers. So I think it's going to work. What were your favorite TV spots? Um, I love the uh, Tracy Morgan, the uh, pretty sure one with Rocket Mortgage while he's in the bath and stuff. That was pretty funny. Um, I also liked uh, the Gwyn and Blake Stefani T-Mobile one where they set up the date and it's uh, Cowboy Blake on his uh, spurs riding in to see her. <laughs> that was good. My third one was probably, I'm a Mila Kunis fan, so Cheetos with Mila uh, was also a good one for me. I thought the Jeep commercial with Bruce Springsteen was brilliant. Uh, I tweeted out a story from Variety at SB Radio. If you want to check that out, Jeep had been trying to get Bruce Springsteen in a Super Bowl spot for over a decade, and they finally got him in that spot. I thought it was really well written and really well done. Um, I love the Toyota spot with the Paralympic swimmer, um, and I thought that was a wonderful spot. And then, you know, if you're going to go non-serious spot on the funny side, I love the spot with uh, Will Ferrell for, I believe it was GM. And, uh, you know, that was very funny. And I thought that the tone of the spots this year was definitely more serious and somber. And I think that's a good thing. There were still some fun spots, but overall, I thought it was more somber because, look, we're in a pandemic. Over 400,000 people have died. And, um, 
So and and then the other thing is Budweiser had said they weren't doing any spots. I saw more spots for Budweiser this year than I've ever seen before. So I'm not sure. You know, we talked about that last week on the show, but it seemed like even if Budweiser wasn't doing the Clydesdale spots, there were Bud Light spots, there were Bud Light, you know, hybrid brand spots. There were a lot of Bud spots. Yeah, that kind of threw me too. When I saw the Bud Light Seltzer, I'm like, I thought Anheuser-Busch pulled out. But yeah, you're right. I saw, I think, two, at least two brand new ones that I hadn't seen before. So that was interesting. And uh, yeah, I also like the Jeep spot too. It kind of throwed me back to the uh, Paul Harvey Chevrolet one from a few years ago that was uh, just really, really well done. Two minutes long, kind of like a little mini movie. So I enjoyed that one as well. Paul Harvey, good day. (laughs) All right. uh, The betting on Super Bowls is always big. This one, the the sports books came out on top overall. So 63% of all tickets were bet on the Chiefs. And then the spread was between three, three and a half points favoring the Chiefs. The total closed at 55.5 points. 68% of all tickets sold were on the over. So the game was under and Tampa Bay obviously covered the three and three and a half spread because they won outright as I said they would do. And, uh, you know, some of the bets that were the prop bets, you know, Gronkowski scored two touchdowns. That was a long shot, but the, maybe the most surprising thing of the whole game, Griggs, no TDs for the Kansas city chiefs. That was plus 6,000. If you put money down on that. So if you put a dollar down on that, you win 6,000 back. Um, Who would have thought that the high-powered Chiefs offense wouldn't score any TDs at all? Pat Mahomes, zero TDs rushing or passing. That was plus $1,500. Someone turned $3,000 into $45,000 there. Tampa Bay to score exactly 31 points was plus $1,400. So, Griggs, uh, you know, again, Vegas comes out on top as they usually do. Don't they always, man? They know how to pick those numbers. And even a a crazy game like this where you never would have thought, like you said, Mahomes not throwing or running for a touchdown. And I think if you're a Chiefs fan and put money on the Chiefs, obviously that was a rough game because uh, they didn't really cover much of anything they normally cover. So, But I always love hearing those numbers and the percentages and the bets. And you're right, Vegas always knows. Pepsi halftime show. Thumbs up, thumbs down. I thought it was rather boring. I thought it was very just mainstream, safe Boring, but I mean, the weekend's good, but it just compared to Super Bowls of the past, Michael Jackson and all the other ones, Justin Timberlake, this one seemed boring to me. Yeah, I think his appeal isn't widespread enough. He, he has some catchy songs. Most people I talk to are like, oh, I, I didn't know he sang that song, but he's not recognizable enough. I, I see the Super Bowl halftime show is iconic and you need the global mass superstars to appear. And, and, you know, maybe during a pandemic this year, they couldn't do that. Um, I thought he was really good. But like you said, when you've had Prince and Michael Jackson and you two and, you know, Lady Gaga and and some of the huge acts that have been on that stage before, I, I thought it was a bottom third Super Bowl halftime show. So I hope next year in Los Angeles at SoFi Stadium, they get someone mega to be the halftime show there. You would think they could because they're in Los Angeles. But uh, Griggs overall, Peter O'Reilly, our friend who was on last week from the NFL, his staff, the NFL in general, did a great job with Super Bowl 55. They got through the season, which a lot of people doubted if they could or not. And uh, another season is in the books. And again, Tom Brady on top. 
Yeah, you know, we talked about when this whole pandemic started, the NFL was coming on board and we're like, wow, are they going to finish the season? Are we going to be talking about Super Bowl 55 at all? Is it going to happen? And they did. It looked great. CBS did great. The field looked great. I mean, they did uh, an overall awesome job in a crazy, crazy year. So congrats to the NFL. And uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing they made it through. And guess what? Boston still loves Tom Brady. Boston posted a 57.6 TV rating, beating out the 52.3 rating from his hometown fan base in Tampa Bay. So more Patriots fans tuned in to watch Tom Brady than fans in Tampa Bay, the home market. That's pretty remarkable, Griggs. That is, a, it just shows how iconic he is. You just, if you're a fan of his, you're a fan of his no matter where he's playing. And that, that's pretty cool number seeing that Boston came up for that. And I thought it was really classy. The Patriots, right after the game, put out a tweet congratulating Tom Brady, calling him the greatest quarterback of all time. That's classy. Take the high road. Not sure that Bill Belichick signed off on that, but uh, nonetheless, it was a really classy tweet. All right, coming up next, Ryan Murphy, three-time Olympic gold medalist swimmer. He's going to join us. Is Tokyo going to happen? How is he preparing? How has the year delay impacted his training? We'll talk to Ryan Murphy. And then after that, Dr. Karen Gallagher from the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. My guest is Ryan Murphy. He is a three-time Olympic gold medalist swimmer, a world record holder. He's a graduate of the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. You can find him online at ryanmurphy.com. Ryan, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Brian. Yeah, I was excited to have you on. Uh, Six months or so from now, you're supposed to be in Tokyo competing in the Olympics. Obviously, you were supposed to be in Tokyo in 2020, but COVID had other plans for that. How have you been staying mentally and physically fit? Because you've got this extra year of training now. Yeah, you know, it's it's been, I think in, in some ways it's been a blessing and in other ways it, it stinks to have to wait. Um, you know, so I think the way I've kind of approached this year is, is taking it as an opportunity to get better. You know, it's just another year to improve. And, um, and, and really, I think this year there's, there's so little distractions, uh, because I can't, I can't really do anything other than just train and, uh, and get ready for this event. So it's, uh, it's been a really good year of training so far and, and really looking forward to these next couple months. What does that look like? Because I know for some people, you know, they've got to scrounge money together. Other people have sponsors that support their training. I know that you've competed in the International Swim League's Budapest bubble. How how are you training? Yeah, so, I mean, the majority of my training comes out at Cal Berkeley. So, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a graduate from Cal, and, and I continue to train with, with that group of guys. So, the majority of my training comes from Cal, and then... Um, like you mentioned, I did participate in the International Swim League. So that was a that was a six week bubble in Budapest. Got in a lot of racing there. And then in terms of like the financial side, I'm I'm really fortunate to have some great sponsors that are allowing me to just keep my focus on training. Who are some of the sponsors? I, I think you work with Bridgestone, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So I've got I've got Bridgestone, I've got Speedo goldfish swim school 
International Swim League. Um, and then there's another one in the works, and that's going to be announced at a later date. Um, so I'm, I'm really, really fortunate to have those really like blue chip brands backing me. Yeah. So mentally, how do you stay prepared? Because again, mentally, this was a preparation for last year. Mentally, it's now going to be hopefully uh, this summer, but you don't even know for sure if it's going to happen. So how do you stay prepared mentally? Yeah, you know, I think so. So coming off of last year, when that decision came down in, in March to postpone the games, you know, you, you kind of take a couple months and I was training, like I was, I was training throughout the whole time, but, but there's a level of, of mental investment that, that you do put into this. And, and that's gonna, that's gonna build in intensity as I, as I move throughout the year. So right now, the, the mental intensity, the physical intensity, both of those are, are just about redlining right now. You know, I'm, I'm really, really pushing it in training, really taking this seriously. Um, and, and it's, it's exciting. The Olympics come around every four years in this case on the fifth year. So, you know, you, you definitely don't want to waste those opportunities when it does come around. And, and so that's, that's really all the motivation I need. How has competing in things like the Budapest bubble from the international swim league, how has that helped you? It's great. Yeah. I mean, the, the international swim league was, was a really cool experience because it was, it was so many competitions in a condensed period and the level of competition was incredible. You know, so a lot of the, a lot of the best swimmers in the world were there and and specifics of the backstroke races, just about every, every single one of the best backstrokers in the world was there. Uh, So really high quality competition every single time I, I stepped up to race. And then the more you get comfortable racing the best, the better off you're going to be when you get to an event like the Olympics because it just feels like second nature at that point because those are guys that I've now raced so many times. All right. Walk me through your pre-race. Uh, you know, How are you preparing like right up until you're jumping in the pool? How are you preparing? What's your, your pre-race uh, ritual? All right. So uh, typically I'm someone where – if uh, if finals are in the afternoon and, and in Tokyo, they're going to be in the morning. So I'll wake up probably like three and a half to four hours before my race. Um, grab grab a quick snack. So for me, I'm the only thing I'm superstitious about is my pre-race snack. It's uh, it's a peanut butter and jelly every single time. Uh, I, I just got in the routine. My mom always made it for me when I was younger, and when I when I came to college, I. I kind of missed it. So, so I started making the PB and J's myself. So I'll, I'll have that. Then I'll go over to the pool, uh, usually with like a coffee in hand, go through, do a good stretch, get in the water, loosen up, um, and then get out, you know, just kind of stretch a little bit more, get in the water again, throw on the, throw on the super tight tech suit, put on, put on some headphones, jam out a little bit and then go in and then hopefully perform really well. What's on the playlist? Ooh, it's always changing. Uh, I, I think I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty flexible with with my taste in music. Like I I kind of like it all, um, but you know, recently I, I've been super into house. So like the like deep house, tropical house, uh, more of like the 
I guess the mainstream house as well. Like I, I really, I really enjoy that type of music. Interesting. So I got to go back to the PB and J. I mean, that's screaming for an endorsement from somewhere, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't specify which, which brand I use for the peanut butter. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that would, that would be a dream sponsor to, to get a, a PB and J sponsor. Cause that is, it is honestly like, I don't think many people take PB and J as their like pre-race fuel. So, uh, yeah, I think I, I definitely would have a, a good marketing pitch there. You go win a few more golds in Tokyo and you're going to have a PB and J sponsor. And I'm going to look from afar and go, aha, see, I mean, if Patrick <laughs> yeah. Mahomes can have Heinz ketchup, you can have PB and J, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Brian, my, my agent's name is also Brian. I got to get you guys on the phone. You guys can come up with these pitches together. <laughs> well, when, when people are listening to this, maybe you'll get some, uh, some calls. Okay. So you were Pac-12 Scholar Athlete of the Year. You went to Cal Berkeley, as we said, the Haas School of Business. So in addition to being a world-class athlete, you got to be pretty smart to go to UC Berkeley. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that was like, that was by design. Like I, I really, I, I've always been someone who has taken school seriously and and that really comes from the influence of my parents and my grandpa. So my my grandpa is is providing the academic genetics in our family. He has his PhD in math. He writes math book math textbooks for a living. Wow! So he's written, he's written over a hundred math textbooks, and uh, and my mom is a math professor in college, and so you know I, I I kind of have just followed in their footsteps, and 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 I I do have a lot of ambition outside of swimming. Like I, I am looking forward to a career outside of the pool, um, after my career is done in, in the pool. And, uh, and so, yeah, going through the, the hospital of business was, was really motivating for me. And it, it's just super inspiring to be around people that have the same sort of intensity and motivation in their career as, as I do for swimming. What's that like when you're going through that intense of a program? I mean, I'm sure, People recognize you as an Olympian and a world-class athlete, but you know, you're in that kind of environment. That's got to be intense too. 100%. Yeah. And, and everything in that major is graded on a curve. So there, there's been classes where I got a 97% overall and I got a B Ooh, in the class. Wow. But, then, but on the, on the alternative, there's also a class where I got like a 68% and got an A minus. So it's all about the the competition, and and I think that that's kind of why I thrived in that major. I think um, I think motivation it just kind of builds off each other. So when I go to the pool, I'm surrounded by guys that were that are super motivated. When I went to the classroom, I was around people that are super motivated, and it just kind of builds on itself. Um, and so it was it was really really cool to to be a part of that major, and. Um, you know, it's, it was an incredible experience. I think it's great that you're already thinking about post-career because the lifespan of a, or the career span of an Olympic athlete, you know, you're not doing this into your forties or or Mm fifties. So I understand you really like investing. Mm -hmm. Walk me through that. Yeah. So, so as I, as I graduated from college, I think the biggest thing I was nervous about was not having 
a, a ton of mental stimulation because I, because I did really enjoy going to school. Um, and so I started trying to search for hobbies that, that would provide enough mental stimulation without having to pick up like an internship or something like that. So that's kind of what led me to investing. And, and as I mentioned, like my sponsors, I'm really fortunate to have some really great companies uh, backing me. And, and with some of that additional income, I'm, I'm investing that. Um, and, and it's super interesting. Like I, I'm super intrigued by, by the day-to-day moves um, and, and what, I guess like investing psychology looks like, but then also I find it super interesting just looking on like a, on like a five to 10 year lens, trying to project where society is going to be a couple of years from now and, and what companies are poised to take advantage of that. So I, I just find the, all of the intersecting dynamics of investing super interesting. And, and it definitely, uh, you know, it definitely keeps my mind going throughout the day. Are you a stocks person? Are you a real estate person? You know, you're in Northern California where there's a lot of VCs. What type of investments? Yeah, so right now I'm just in stocks. Um, And I think as, you know, hopefully I'm able to accumulate some wealth and and then I could diversify my investments a little bit more. But for now, I'm I'm trying to keep everything pretty liquid. Um, You know, at some point I'm going to want to buy a house and, 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 make some some larger purchases like that um so i'm trying to keep my my assets all pretty liquid for right now but i but i am super interested in in the venture capital the the private equity markets um and and potentially trying to get into something like that long term yeah that's very very interesting i think it's great that you're doing that and again you went to one heck of a school to uh teach you about all of that mm-hmm. With the Olympics coming up, so you've already been there once. What did you learn the first time around that's going to help you the second time around? And it could be anything from, hey, I, I know what the housing situation's like. I know what opening ceremonies feels like. It doesn't just have to be the pool. Yeah, you know, I think the, the biggest thing with, with the Olympics is, is you just have to be ready to go with the flow. You know, I think the, the thing I learned in, in Rio is like sometimes the buses aren't going to be on time. Sometimes you're going to go to the dining hall and you're not going to be able to eat the food you want. Maybe your toilet's going to back up because <laughs> they poured concrete down the drains. Ooh. Uh, so, you, so you really just have to be ready to, to go with the flow and like just realize like you are there to compete to the best of your ability given the conditions. So I was someone where the worse the situation, the better. I was I was hoping for it to be a super windy night so so other people couldn't sleep the night before. Um and I and I kind of learned to to embrace the things that weren't ideal. Um and, and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to make Rio sound like it was all bad because it was it was an incredible experience, but but just recognizing like as athletes, we're all perfectionists, we're all trying to do things as perfect as possible it's not realistic for everything to go perfect. So just be willing to, to roll with the punches and, and recognize that all these little small things that, that might be subtly annoying in the moment, it, it's really, it's not going to take away from your performance. Like you're there to perform. Everyone's in the same situation and, uh, and you just have to be ready to step up on that day. And are you able to soak in and enjoy things like the opening ceremonies and getting to know athletes from other countries? Or are you so laser focused that it's just like tunnel vision on that pool? 
Yeah, I mean, for for swimming, swimming's the first event at the Olympics, so we don't we don't participate in the opening ceremonies, um, and and that's I mean that is what it is. Like that we're there to to do a job, and and I think another thing that that I recognized the first time around that that I really enjoyed is just take advantage of of having a a picture phone. You know, like I I took all kinds of pictures. We're in the moment. It's like you know I'm gonna I'm gonna want. I'm going to want to be able to look back and, and remember this stuff. And, and pictures are a really easy way for me to jog my memory. Um, so I took so many pictures throughout those two weeks in, in Rio. And, and I think that's, if I'm there again, that's, that's something I'm going to be doing again this time. You've got RyanMurphy.com. You're on Twitter. You're on Instagram. You've got a YouTube channel. What's your social media strategy? So I think the the biggest thing for me on on social media is just trying to communicate who I am. Um, you know, I I like it's it's very easy to to think that my social media is geared towards my my close group of friends. Realistically, like I I think I've got like a hundred and twenty something thousand followers on on Instagram. Like those aren't all close friends. You know, like I, I think the, the hardest thing for me to realize on social media is that a lot of these people don't really know who I am. And so I'm, I'm trying to give them as much of a glimpse in, into who I am, what makes me tick, what some of my hobbies are outside of the pool, what I do when I just have some free time um, and just give them a little bit of a glimpse into that. So I, I'm not someone who, who takes myself super seriously. And so I think my my social my social media is, is a little bit uh, I would say sporadic uh, as as a result of that, but you know that's just that's just kind of who I am. Like, I think I've got a lot of different stuff going on at at any time, um, and sometimes I'll just snap a picture of it and, and throw it up there. So you do all your own social media. You're not one of those athletes that has someone else ghost posting for you. So I do I do get input. Uh, so I, I've got a team that's, that's helping me out. Like. If it's like, okay, Ryan, you know, you haven't shown any pictures of, of your diet lately, you know, take a, take a picture of what you're eating tonight, give people a little bit of an insight in, into what you're eating. So I, I do get input. Um, but for the most part, like every, everything that's posted, that is, that's a picture that, that I snapped and, uh, and, and put up there. So it's, I'm getting input in terms of people helping me figure out what content to, to kind of capture. Uh, but the actual collection of it is all me. That makes sense. One of the things I saw on your social media, this was like last March when the pandemic just started hitting, you were like pushing a car uphill as part of your training. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Okay. That, cause I've had a lot of athletes on in the last year and they, mm-hmm. many of them had to come up with ways to train because they couldn't go to a gym and they couldn't go really outside of their home radius. So people are using like water bottles as weights. And, but I was like, I don't think I've seen anyone pushing a car uphill. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was in the time frame where the Olympics had not been postponed yet. Okay. But we didn't, we didn't have access to facilities at that point. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to be ready no matter what. Like, I don't care. Like if I, if I have to work out in my house, if I've got to try to swim in a bathtub in my house, like I'm going to figure out a way to, to be ready for this in the event that the Olympics continues to go on. 
So I was, I was just doing a, a workout at my house and, and we had some, we had some, some stuff here. Like we had like a little, like 30 pound, like dumbbell. Um, we had a boxing bag, we had some, some ropes. So I did a workout and, uh, and one of my roommates is, is Josh Bruneau, who got a silver at the 2016 Olympics in the 200 press. So we're doing this workout together and we're like, you know, I feel like we really worked out the arms pretty well, but it's hard to work out the legs without weights and so we were we were trying to figure out like all right how do we get the legs going and then i i looked at my car and i was like josh like do you think we should just try to like kind of sled push my car and he was like all right yeah let's let's do it let's see how it goes and it was a great workout you know like that that definitely definitely got the legs burning uh you know, my car is not a light car. I think I have a, I have a Jeep Grand Cherokee and I think that's like a couple of tons. So, so it, it definitely took some force to, to get that thing moving. Now, is there someone in the front seat of that thing in case uh, you need to put on the brake or is that just you two like pushing that thing from behind, hoping it doesn't go down the hill? Yeah, we, we yeah, we had a steerer. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, so Josh's <laughs> wife was in, was in the front seat and she was, she was steering and then, there was one point we were where we were like trying to push it up the hill and, and we got stuck and it started coming backwards. So, so then she had to hit the brakes, but for the most part, like we live on a pretty narrow street and in California, everyone parks on the street. So the only thing we wanted to do was just ram my car into someone else's car, um, by way of us trying to work out. So, so we needed her behind the wheel to make sure we didn't, we didn't create any significant damage there. <laughs> yeah, very, very smart. So I know you grew up in, uh, what was it, Point Verde Beach? Yeah, Ponte Vedra. Oh, Ponte Vedra. Okay, I butchered yeah. that. So it's near Jacksonville, right? Yes, yeah. And you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Goldfish Swim School promotes water safety. How did you get involved with them? Yeah, so, I mean, my my life has been transformed over over the sport of swimming and, and really the ability of, of knowing how to swim. And, and so one of the things that, that I've been super passionate about is, is trying to pass along the gifts of teaching kids to swim. And so that, that led me to, to Goldfish Swim School. Goldfish Swim School is a franchise around the U.S. They've got over 100 schools open now. They put through over 100,000 kids in swim lessons per month. And so at a grassroots level, I just feel like they're doing really incredible things to grow our sport. And, and just by nature of, of who I am and, and the, the incredible memories and, and success that, that swimming's brought me, um, I, I want to pay that forward. And, and partnering with Goldfish has been really integral in helping me, I feel like, give back to the sport that's given me so much. That's terrific. All right, so... Before I let you go, you are king of the backstroke. How do you, I, I've always wondered, like, how do you pick freestyle or backstroke or breaststroke or do you, someone just tell you one day or you specialize in that? How does that work? Yeah, you know, it's, I've just always been a backstroker. Uh, you know, so I, I trained every stroke growing up. I still train every stroke. Uh, it's just that backstroke comes the most, the most natural to me. Um, and it, it's always super interesting. Like there's not like a specific body type or, or anything really. It's just about how you're kind of flowing through the water. 
I will say when I was growing up, like it, I just felt like I had this feel for the water and backstroke that mm. I didn't necessarily have for the other strokes. Like my coaches would be giving me technique advice and the other strokes. And I, I'm a super obedient guy. So I would accept that advice, put it into, put it into action and do it. Whenever I got stroke advice on backstroke, I honestly ignored it because I, I felt like it was messing up what I felt like was really fast. And, and I was doing that at the age of six. So I, I never really took technique advice and backstroke. And, you know, I think that, I think it honestly paid off for me. I just knew that whatever I was feeling was the right way to do it. And, and I had this belief, uh, in myself in that stroke that I didn't necessarily have in the other strokes. Ryan Murphy, three-time Olympic gold medalist swimmer, world record holder, investor, peanut butter and jelly eater, uh, <laughs> ambassador for Goldfish Swim School. Best of luck to you on your training as you lead into Tokyo, and uh, it's been a pleasure getting to talk to you. Yeah, this is awesome, Brian. I really appreciate the time. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, Sports Business Radio host Brian Berger here. The wait is finally over. Sports Business Radio merchandise has finally arrived. We're working with our friends at the Parish Project to provide you with the opportunity to buy really quality Sports Business Radio merchandise. We've started with long sleeve t-shirts and short sleeve t-shirts. They come in five different colors each, a variety of sizes. I love my shirts. And soon, we're going to have hoodies to offer as well, hooded sweatshirts. I know a lot of you are wearing hooded sweatshirts while you're working from home these days, but whether you're working out, just lounging around the house, or doing whatever you're doing, you can rock Sports Business Radio merchandise. I think you're going to love it. Go to parishproject.com. That's P-A-R-I-S-H project.com, parishproject.com. And you can order your sports business radio merchandise today. We appreciate your support. And uh, send us your best picture. Tweet it to us at SB Radio. Or also you can get us on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. We look forward to seeing you rocking that sports business radio merchandise. My guest is Karen Gallagher. She's a senior researcher for our new partner, the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. Karen, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. How are you? Great, great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have Global Sport Institute as our partner. You guys do such amazing research and have so many amazing findings, and I'm glad we can shine a further spotlight on them here on Sports Business Radio. All right, so tell us about... The news that came out on Friday, the findings from NFL head coach hiring and pathways in the Rooney Rule era. Yeah, well, first, um, it, it's exciting to be able to present this information here because our goal at the Institute really is to make sure that we're doing um, rigorous research, but that 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 research isn't sort of held for just scientific journals and findings being presented to the scientific community. It's really about translating it out and having an impact 
um, in sport and beyond, right? Because some of like what we study in sport is really relevant throughout society. We feel like it's a, a reflection. So I'm really excited to talk about this study because I think it's really important as we think about you know, inclusion, equity, and diversity in hiring. Um, you know, we, we talk about sport being this meritocracy where if you are a big performer, you're going to achieve. And although that might be true for most players, it isn't, in fact, true when we look at success in, in achieving a head coaching position in the NFL. So this study really looked at not just how does one become an NFL head coach? But through those major pipelines um, that lead to becoming a head coach, how do you get into those pipelines? What do those look like? And I think the big, the big takeaways here are that, you know, the majority of head coaches, despite the Rooney rule, um, are still white head coaches. So the opportunity specifically for African-American head coaches remains somewhat limited. Um, and we find that the major pipeline toward becoming a head coach is through the offensive coordinator position. And this is still quite restricted for African-American head coaches. Um, they have more opportunities for African-American head coaches in defensive coordinator pipelines. However, um, those pipelines are less likely to result in a position as a head coach. Let's go back to 2003 when the NFL's Rooney rule was established for our listeners right now that are going, what the heck is the Rooney rule? Can you explain what the Rooney rule is? Yeah. So in 2003, the NFL established a Rooney rule that requires franchises to interview candidates of color for senior football operations and head coaching positions. And the impetus for this was really the firing of, of Tony Dungy and, and, and Dennis Green um, following the 2002 season, despite really having these successful seasons. So civil rights lawyers, um, one who's very well known probably to everybody, Johnny Cochran, um, they published a study that showed African-American head coaches were the last hired, first fired, and when compared to their white counterparts, they really had higher winning percentages. So they investigated this. This report came out and this Rooney rule was established. Um, and so really, we wanted to say our, our first field study looking at NFL head coach hiring was kind of like, let's look at the last 10 years. And we decided to take a deeper dive and go all the way back to the Rooney rule and not just look at what's the total number now? What was the total number then? That really doesn't tell you as much as looking at the year to year fluctuations. And the fact of the matter is, if you look at seasons ending 2003 through seasons ending 2020, um, there has been no more, there's either zero, one, two, or three African-American head coaches hired. And actually there was only one year where three African-American head coaches were hired. And that was a year where we hired, we had the most openings for head coaches. So usually we get zero, one, or two um, African-American head coaches hired despite this Rooney rule. Yeah, it's really amazing. I, I've talked with uh, Kenneth Shropshire, the CEO of the Global Sport Institute, when he was on recently. I look at someone like Eric Bieniemy, who is the offensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs and one of the sharpest minds in the NFL, such a, a great leader of, of people. And uh, 
that guy can't he no one's hiring him. And I don't understand why he's not getting hired. And but I think, you know, one of the things I, I took away from the Global Sports Matters podcast from this week is this is really this is not an NFL decision. This is down to the individual owners of the 32 teams and the NFL can try and put incentives in place, whether it's rewarding a team with a draft pick or whatever it is, but it really comes down to the practices of the individual teams. Right. Right. And when like this example, you're citing every, everyone was saying, you know, he deserves a head coaching position. He actually hired with every team that was hiring a head coach yet it didn't result in him getting a head coaching position. And it does come down, you know, what do we hear teams come out with? Um, He interviewed well. It was a good match. And these are really intangible. Um, How do you you make yourself a good match for these owners when you don't necessarily know what they're looking for? Are they looking for someone like them? And if that's the case, then – you know, how are, how are coaches of color supposed to compete with white head coaches in in that capacity? And in fact, when you look at the head coaches of color, you will find all of them played at least college football. Almost all of them played in the NFL. And the same isn't true for the white head coaches. Some of them didn't even play in our, and I'm talking about across our study. Some of them didn't even play beyond high school. So, you know, what, what is this good match if it isn't achievement what is this interviews well if it isn't a demonstrated record of success so i i think you're you know kenneth shropshire is certainly um a source of wisdom here when he talks about the fact that uh, it has to come from these owners it starts at the top the other thing that i think our audience needs to know and correct me if i'm wrong about 70% of NFL players are African-American. So you've got, you know, almost three quarters of the league that's African-American, but in the coaching ranks, it's predominantly white. If you look at other leagues like the NBA, for example, those numbers aren't consistent with what the NFL numbers are. That's, That's correct. I mean, when we've got, basically what we're looking at is you know, these players out on the field who are putting fans in the seats, who are making money for these franchises, you know, it's fine for us to have most of them be African-American. But when it comes to, you know, your your post-athletic career and moving into the high ranks of coaching, that seems to be closed off. It, it's it's inequitable. I mean, the opinions aside, just the numbers tell you it's inequitable. And no one's suggesting quotas. No one's saying, okay, then what is the right percentage? What is it? But we are so far off the mark that that it, 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 it tells a story, you know, beyond just opinion. It tells a story that most players are African-American, but very few of them make it to the head coaching ranks. Right now, and I don't know if you have the answer to this, and I don't have this up in front of me, I think the only two head coaches of color are the New York Jets coach and the Houston Texans coach. Am I missing anyone? Uh, And I'm Um, talking head coach. Well, well, if we're talking about right now, um, because, you know, um, we had some hires. And so that went beyond what we did in this study. So we ended at season ending 2020. There were some hires over 2021. Um, 
but when we talk about coaches of color, you have to also um, include that um, there's more than just African-American head coaches. So you have to think about Robert Sala you, as a, an Arab-American head coach. Um, you have to think about um, the fact that we now have um, a back-to-back Latino head coach. Um, so there, there, there are some coaches of color, but there's certainly, I mean, the fact that you can count them on one hand. Right. Still. Ron Rivera is, is a coach of color Ron in, Rivera, in Washington. Yeah. He, and he is sort of this interesting example of a coach of color who was able to go from the defensive side of the ball to the offensive side of the ball, get a head coaching position. And he's the lone example of a head coach of color leaving a head coaching position and going straight into another head coaching position without a lull, without a gap of having to go into broadcasting or back down to college or into a position coach or coordinator position. So he, he represents a lone example, but we don't have any African-American head coaches who have done that. So right now, what is the Rooney rule? What is the rule? I mean, there a few months ago, you know, there were all these uh, conversations around how can we get more coaches of color as head coaches in the NFL? And there were talks about rewarding teams and then there were people saying, well, you know, you should be hiring based on who's best, not, you know, who's a minority. And where did they land with that? Do you, is that part of your report with what is the NFL doing with its teams to try and give incentive for more head coaches to be coaches of color? You know, that wasn't part of our report here on where they landed. And, and I think that discussion is ongoing and, and it's ongoing across sports. But specifically with, within the NFL, one of the things that's hard is when you institute something like the Rooney Rule, which is a good thing, you, just because you compel a team to interview a coach of color doesn't mean you're compelling a team to seriously interview a head coach of color. Right. Oftentimes you find these teams, they know who they want. They know who they want. And so they're bringing in these head coaches of color to interview without any real opportunity existing at the end of that interview. Right. And, 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 and that therein lies the question. One of the things we did with this study was to, we really wanted to present the what we wanted it to be a very bold, objective look at the, what, what is going on since the Rooney rule in head coach hiring. And, and, and then once we can all agree that this is what's happening, the numbers don't lie, the statistics don't lie. And we took a deeper dive here, looking at factors that might be correlated, like, you know, how is race correlated? How is this correlated? We look, we, we dove into some of those statistics, but at the end of the day, what we really need to pivot and look at is why does it look this way? So what, and what can we do to change it? And the understanding those factors has to be the direction that researchers go and, and the direction that the NFL itself goes into. And again, it gets back to that point that the owners, I mean, we can in, incentivize all we want, but the owners have the final say. As part of your study, it looks like, according to what I have here, 115 head coaching changes over the course of, of the study you conducted. Is that right? Yes. So that's a yep, lot of that's changes. And then how many of those 115 head coaching changes were coaches of color? Um, 21 of them were African-American. 
23 of them were head coaches of color. Two of those being Ron Rivera, <laughs> mm. because he had two, there were two changes involving him. So two were Latino, but of the 115 coaching changes, 21 of them over the last 18 seasons, 21 of them were African-American. Okay. And again, to repeat the easiest pathway to becoming a head coach for uh, a coach of color seems to be through being a defensive coordinator for a white coach. It's through being an offensive coordinator. Is that right? Correct. So when we look at the numbers of, um, of just offensive coordinators that were um, incoming in these 18 seasons that we covered. So there were 242 offensive coordinator positions filled over these 18 seasons. And again, 21 of them were African-American. So it's such a small number of offensive coordinators that are African-American. And in fact, there were years where no offensive coordinators of color were hired and those positions were left unfilled. Hmm. So that there was no one hired and there were no African-Americans. Um, you know, there were a lot of years like that. And then when you look at the defensive side of the ball and, and look at the breakdown of defensive coordinators, um, you end up with a total of 208 changes over these 18 seasons and 56 of them were African-American. Um, so they're better represented within the defensive coordinator pipeline. But again, it isn't the strongest pipeline. And in fact, when so when you go back and you think about, okay, you're saying it's not the, str the strongest pipeline, you know, what does that mean? So when we look at the incoming head coaches in our study, um, you know, 30 of, of them were defensive coordinators, 39 of them were offensive coordinators. So more of them were offensive coordinators. However, nine of the incoming were um, defensive coordinators moving into head coaching positions were African-American and only four African-American head coaches were, came from the offensive side of the ball, offensive coordinator specifically. You know what I'd be interested in? I don't know if you have this uh, handy. How many NFL owners are owners of color? I can think of one, the owner in Jacksonville is an owner yeah. of color. I can't think of any other owner in the NFL. Yeah, I Who's an owner of color? Can uh, you? I don't definitively have that those numbers in front of me, but but it, it, even if there is one more, we're talking about a very low percentage. Um, and if you if you're gonna think about the uh, the owners and um, whether or not they're owners of color, um, you know there are multiple teams that have still have records where they haven't hired head coaches of color yet. So. Um, you know, I'd have to go back and look, but it would be, you're, you're right. It would be interesting to explore that, I, that idea of, you know, head or a, an owner who's a, a person of color, do they have a better record of hiring? And, and we actually have that, um, on our global sport matters field studies website. I, we have those data up there. So I'd have to reference that. Plug the website. How can people find all of the, the wonderful data that you've gathered over the years and including this data so they can see for themselves? Um, yeah, I, if you, um, you can link to it from a number of, of ways, but we are at um, Global Sport Matters. That's our digital media content that puts out all of this amazing content. You referenced Kenneth Shropshire's um, interview. We've had multiple panels. There's a panel going on 
now. <laughs> um, so there are, you know, through the ASU Global Sport Institute website or through um, Global Sport Matters. And you can find not only um, sort of the breakdown that gives you just the overview that we're talking about here, but you can actually access the full um, research paper that is much more uh, of an academic publication that reviews all of these data in detail and presents, you know, um, each season, coaches by name, teams by name, and things like that. So it, it's a much uh, deeper look at at that. And again, globalsport.asu.edu is the Global Sport Institute website. And then I think it's globalsportmatters.com. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Uh, yep. That and and right. if you're not listening to the Global Sport Matters podcast, I would highly encourage it. It's it's a really good podcast. And one of the reasons, honestly, Karen, that I reached out to Kenneth, who I've known for a long time and I want to work with you guys, is I do believe what you said up front of this conversation. You guys are finding some really interesting data and it needs to be applied more in the sports world. So, for instance... You know, what if this data was sent to all 32 of the NFL owners and they looked at this and went, wow, this is really stark. We need to do something about it. And, and you know, if that led to change, positive change, that would be a really great thing. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, that, that's that's exactly what we're hoping to do is to, you know, to enlighten enlighten the fan base as well. But in enlightened industry to look across all all of sport and start to examine how um, inclusion, equity, and diversity diversity is handled. So yeah, I mean, there's no denying it when you look at the numbers. And I I, um, I strongly encourage everybody to go over to Global Sport Matters and look at the current issue is how the NFL moves forward. And in this issue, you are going to find. Um, big experts commenting on this, reviewing the, the the current study we've done, other studies that have been done. Bill Roden has a, a, an excellent video up about uh, Black opportunity in the NFL, um, a, an open letter from Kenneth Shropshire to the NFL owners, the data don't lie. Um, some really interesting content up there that will round out um, the data um, so the, the, the whole information is up there. I encourage everybody to go there and check it out. It's, it's, this issue is, the word for it is compelling. Globalsportmatters.com. Karen, before I let you go, give us a little background. How long have you been doing research and how did you get into this? Yeah, I, um, I earned my PhD actually at Arizona State University. And oh, my background is researching the overlap between elite athletes and military veterans as they enter the next phase of their life. So the post-sport journey and how that looks a lot like military to civilian transition and what are the whole person consequences of that transition, cognitive, wellness, you know, all of it. And what can we do to better support athlete, elite athletes and military veterans in that in that journey. So a lot of my, my PhD work and the work I, I do directly for the global sport Institute is on the post-sport journey. Um, and I'm also a Tillman scholar. So I'm a U.S. army airborne veteran, Gulf war one veteran myself. Wow. Thanks for your service. Thank you for your support. Um, and our, our, our goal is to really look at, because I, I really do see opportunities in examining sport and, and, and looking at it across different, 
groups within society and across society as a whole. There's such an opportunity here to extrapolate this meaning and generalize it across globally across societies and, and to be able to make meaningful change. So I came on board with Global Sport Institute um, a, a couple of years ago um, and, and moved into this senior researcher position. I'm, I'm a, a quantitative researcher. We have qualitative researchers. So we're really able to round out the, the way we look at these data. And then the fact that we have Global Sport Matters that is and, 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 and affiliates like you who are able to move this information out to the public has been um, such an opportunity as a translational researcher. Dr. Karen Gallagher, senior researcher for the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. Again, go to globalsportmatters.com. I'm so excited about our new partnership, Karen, and uh, thanks for taking the time to share this information. And I know our audience will find it interesting to dig into the details themselves. Thank you so much. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions, griggsproductions.com.